Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Vancouver, British Columbia. And I want to welcome you to the end of 2020. I think a lot of us are very glad that this year has come to an end. And we wanted to end it on a good note. And so we're going to do so with a two-part series uh, that we recorded back in 2019. And this is a rebroadcast, but it's probably our most popular uh, series of podcasts that we ever did. And that's an interview that Amy Brown Hughes hosted at Neshota House Theological Seminary with Professor John Baer. And it's uh, concerning his work uh, on the early church father origin. So hope you enjoy this conversation. It's going to be a two-part podcast. So, okay, have a great new year, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a live recording of the OnScript podcast at Neshota House Theological Seminary. We are very glad to have all of you here, and we are very uh, glad to have uh, Professor John Baer with us today and Dr. Amy Brown Hughes, who's a co-host of the OnScript podcast and known to a lot of our listeners. And um, so we're, we're thrilled to be here uh, to discuss origin and patristics and all things uh, early church. So um, I'd just like to introduce Amy Brown Hughes and uh, Professor John Baer to our listeners and to all of you who are here uh, today. And so I'm just going to start out with uh, Professor Baer. And he is a British Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian. And he is the former dean of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary in New York, where he is currently the director of the Master of Theology program and the Father George Florovsky Distinguished Professor of Patristics. Uh, he's the editor of the Patristics series released by St. Vladimir's Press. Um, so he's written extensively on the early church and done a lot of work in translation, which we're going to be talking about uh, this evening. So um, first of all, I just want to say welcome to you, um, and thank you so much for being willing to do this. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it very much. And I also want to uh, welcome uh, Amy Brown-Hughes. Amy's a co-host of the podcast, so she's already uh, known to, to a lot of you. Uh, she's assistant professor of patristics at Gordon College. Uh, she received her PhD in historical theology with an emphasis in early Christianity from Wheaton College. And she's the author with Lynn Kolick of A Christian Women in the, in the Patristic World, uh, their influence, authority, and legacy in the second through fifth centuries, which is uh, a really groundbreaking work. And her research interests include Eastern uh, Christianity, Trinitarian and Christological thought, Christian asceticism, theological anthropology, and much, much more. Um, and she's uh, likes to, and she wants to highlight uh, the contributions of minority voices to theology, especially those of women. So, uh, Amy, welcome to the OnScript podcast. <laughs> Delighted to be here. All right, I, I want to just start out by asking both of you a little bit about how you got into uh, the study of the patristics. So, uh, Professor Bear, if you could just uh, begin by talking um, how how did you land in this world and and land in it so firmly and deeply. And that's a just, is it? If I could just say a few words about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. that that's not that easy. Um, so I grew up in the Orthodox Church in England. Okay. Yeah. Um, my father was a priest, uh, great-grandfather a priest, come from Russian emigration to my father's side. Uh, during most of my teenage years, I stopped going to church, I fell out of church, came back to church in, when I was about 17 years old, dropped out of school and came to church. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I became passionately interested in theological re reflection at that point. Um, and my first real theological 
books that I started to cut my teeth on was especially Metropolitan John Zizoulis's book, Being as Communion. Yeah, and I became really fascinated with that. And then I realized that this is, in fact, what I want to do. But if I wanted to do that, um, studying theology as an undergraduate in England was not the way to go. Um, I did th- because if you were doing that, it would be you'd get one class in church history, one, one class in patristics, and, and maybe one more, and that's about it. So what I decided to do, in fact, was to go to university, study philosophy, especially Manuel Levinas and, and um, the continental phenomenological tradition, which the Zulus have been making quite a bit of use with, and then on the basis of that, thereafter going to do doc- uh, master's level work at Oxford with Metropolitan Callistos in the realm of patristics. So it went from you know, growing up the church, coming back, studying philosophy, and I actually think one of my one of the greatest blessings in my life is that I've never really studied theology. I studied philosophy. I studied how to think, how to read, how to think critically, and so on. And then went back to the early church to read the early writings of the church and the tradition. And I've been doing that for some twenty years or more now. And every time I go back to it and immerse myself in it, I realize how much more there is to learn. It becomes more and more difficult the more and more you do it. Could you talk briefly about uh, the influence on you uh, of uh, Metropolitan Metropolitan Kalstas? So you studied with him at yeah. uh, at so Oxford. At and, Oxford. And, yeah, talk a, a little bit about who he is and his so, influence on you. Uh, Metropolitan Kalstas is one of the main Orthodox theologians in the 20th century. Um, he grew up in Bath, near where I, where I was born. Uh, he converted to Orthodoxy in the mid-50s, I think it was. Um, ended up becoming a monk on Patmos and then coming back to Oxford to finish his DPhil doctorate, his PhD there, on um, Mark the Monk. It was Mark the Monk, yeah, and Baptist Mark the Monk under Dewey's Chitty, and then spent 30 or 40 years teaching at Oxford. Um, so I came to him to study theology in the late 80s, and in fact, most of what was involved in studying theology as a graduate student then was simply meeting with him one-on-one every week, going through different fathers week by week for a year or two, and then doing doctoral work after that. Great. And uh, Amy, let me just ask you a little bit uh, about how you got into the study of patristics and some of the major influences on you. So I am... A little of a weird bird. Um, listeners of the podcast know that I come from the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, so uh, I was a girl who never said a creed until after college, who is now a woman who studies them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so uh, for me, though, it was specifically a class in my undergraduate within the first probably year or so when I learned about this little group called the Montanists. <laughs> and you know that's the term that they not the term that they called themselves they were the new prophecy but Priscilla and Maximilla and I as I listened to them and the the prophecy and the baptism and all the stuff that they did they sounded quite wild they sounded a lot like the people I went to church with <laughs> and <laughs> I was thought there's nothing new under the sun and this just sort it's just so opened the door for me to begin to read uh, just more 
that, that also began my interest in women in early Christianity. So that, that started out very early. And then after that, specifically connecting with the East is when I read um, Gregory of Nyssa for the first time, uh, a little bit later in my undergraduate, and then going and deciding during my master's program that that's what I wanted to do. I started reading some in the medieval period, uh, got later than that and went, no, turn back around. <laughs> went right back to the early church. Excellent. Well, um, from from here on out in the interview, I'm going to hand it over to Amy because she actually knows what she's talking about when when it comes to things in the early church. And so she's going to be uh, hosting the interview from here on out. So over to you, Amy. Thanks, Matt. So I am so delighted to have this conversation. Uh, if you were you weren't in here earlier, but we just had a really great time preparing for this interview. Uh, in hindsight, we probably should have been recording our conversation earlier. Um, and I also got to crash his class on Origin earlier today, which I really appreciated and enjoyed just sitting and reading a text. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So for our listeners, would you give us a sort of a biographical rundown of Origen, his work, some of his contributions, why he's controversial, people have heard his name, maybe, um, but for the most part, he's not terribly well known in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that's a shame, isn't it? Yes. It's really a shame. So just most fundamentally, he was born around the year 185, and he ended up after an extensive round of torture, dying as a broken uh, witness of the faith around the year 250, 254. So that's a span of his life. Okay? Um, we know about his life from Eusebius Church History Book 6, which is mostly devoted to him, and in many ways is really the first hagiography. You know, you've got lines of martyrs before that, but here's a kind of a hagiography of somebody do- in their work. And it's really interesting what Eusebius does because he kind of patches over things and difficulties and and highlights other things. So f- the first time he really comes to our attention is around the year 203. There's a persecution going on um, in Alexandria and uh, whichever emperor it was at the time. Sits my mind. Um, and all... Severus, that's it. And, and all, all the um, Christian teachers in Alexandria left apart from Origen. He remained alone teaching uh, the word of God to all those who want to come to him. Yeah? And he showed incredible bravery in that. In fact, a few years earlier, when his father was, martyr- when his father was led to martyrdom, um, his mother had to hide his clothes to stop him going out and joining his father. Okay? So he was dedicated and zealous. Um, and it's really only after um, the persecution ceases and Demetrius comes back, that we hear anything about Demetrius, who is said to be the Bishop of Alexandria. But in fact, you know, this is part of the emergence of a centralized Episcopal system. It's not there yet. It's not really there, even until the early 4th century. And so the tensions that emerges between Origen and Demetrius is one of the defining features of his life. Demetrius comes back. He finds Origen, who's been teaching everybody. Everybody's been flocking to hear the word of God from him. And so there's this uneasy relationship. It continues in all sorts of ways. It flares up. Origen goes traveling around looking for other places to live, comes back. Um, Origen really is the first international theological rock star. (laughs) He's called all over the place to investigate the teaching of others, to teach other bishops, to, to correct others. He's called by the emperor's mother to explain the faith to her, Empress Mamiya, yeah? All over the place, he's doing all these kind of things. No wonder Demetrius gets rather 
jealous of him. And in fact, Eusebius says it really was jealousy that prompted Demetrius to start spreading rumors about him. And they are rumors. Um, so he's the first real international rock star, theological rock star, uh, called to witness to the faith and to teach the faith all around the Mediterranean in which nobody else had done before that. He's the first one to really work on the text of scripture, producing the Hexapla, where he went through and took the different Jew, uh, uh, the Greek translations, the Hebrew text, made a parallel edition of six different versions, Hexapla, six columns of the scriptural text and then started writing commentaries from Genesis all the way through. He's reported to have written hundreds of thousands of lines throughout the course of his life. Yeah, amazing. Um, you know, my wife used to ask me when we were first married where I'd put the different fathers on a football team. <laughs> okay. Soccer, soccer for Americans. Yeah. Where I'd put them on, on a football team, yeah? Oh, I can't wait to you hear know, this. And obviously you'd put someone like Jerome and Epiphanius in attack. Of <laughs> yeah? Yes. Yep. You, you'd put Irenaeus in defence. Yes. You'd put Dionysius out there somewhere in left field somewhere. Yeah, you know, you, Very far you, in left field. You can listen like that. So Origen was a schoolboy who picked up the ball and ran with it. He invented the game rugby. He got kicked off the team, but everybody played rugby thereafter. Yes. Okay. <laughs> So Perfect. even though he gets condemned three centuries later and there's a history of controversy leading up to his condemnation, all of which is it's posthumous for one thing, and it's based upon reports upon reports, and there's a whole history of the anti-originistic type theology that's going on, um, they're still reading him. Yeah. Yeah? Athanasius in the Cappadocians, St. Basil, St. Gregory Nazianzus, look back to him as, you know, Athanasius calls him the labor-loving origin who defended Nicaea. The Cappadocians, Basil and Gregory, when they came back from Athens, having spent their studies in Athens, and by studying in Athens, they, they didn't just go for three years like we go off to university for three, they went for about ten years or so. They came back and they did what any good gentleman would do, and that's to go on retreat. Mm -hmm. And when on retreat, they read through the work of Origen, producing a work which is known as a Philokalia, which is extracts of their favorite passages from him. Yeah? So th he was widely read and known and, and beloved. So what was the gateway work for you with Origen? What's sort of that, that first work that just grabbed you? Um, you know, my first work was on Irenaeus. I did my doctoral work on Irenaeus. And the kind of standard state of patristic scholarship in the late part of the 20th century was still that, you know, Irenaeus was a good biblical theologian, Origen was this wacky Alexandrian doing allegory, Platonism, this, that, and the other. You know, so I came from Irenaeus. Um, and then I was teaching for 25 years. Uh, well, actually, probably about 20 years before I started doing my edition of Origen. And during that time, I came you know, teaching Origen year in, year out, became overwhelmingly convinced about the inadequacies of the presentation of his work. And, as, and then working through that for the benefit of my students and preparing this... Um, absolutely came to love the work on first principles. Hey, it's oh, most, that is it's an the most spectacular way. That work. is a great segue. Along with segue. the commentary on John. Along with the commentary on John. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's an excellent segue because among early Christian scholars, origins on first principles is a huge deal. But for various reasons, which you might enumerate here in a moment, Origen's work is not well uh, known, or if it is, it's often dismissed, or it's a bit too wacky or plagued with controversy. So would you give an overview of what Origen offers us in this work? So the problem with On First Principles, it's a controversial work to begin with, even by the end of the uh, Greg of Nyssa, um, 
in his work on the making of man, De Hominis Opificio, in the 379, 380, that kind of time, he reports how it has been so badly mistranslated in the Nicene Post-Nicene Fathers. He says that some people taught the pre-existence of soul. No, some people concerned themselves with the book on first principles, which seems to teach pre- different thing. Okay? So there's, there's questions of how to interpret it all the way from the beginning. And part of it is a changing theological context from an apocalyptic world of Second Temple Judaism, a liturgical world, into a much more philosophical, abstract, dogmatic world. Okay? He's still working in the earlier world. And that's still actually what liturgy is, really, when one gets into it. So it's controversial work from the beginning. Um, the real difficulty is that we don't have it in Greek. We've only got it in Latin, translated by, by Rufinus in the 390s. And his translation of the work on first principles was the occasion for Jerome and Rufinus, who had been the best friends, to absolutely fall apart into the most vitriolic, um, nasty, bitter dispute you can possibly imagine, to the point that thereafter, Jerome only refers to Rufinus as being Porky the Grunter. Jerome and his nicknames. Yeah, I mean, really, it's just just abysmal. Um, That's why I'd put him in attack. Yeah. and then when he hears, he gets reports that Rufinus is now in Rome translating the work on first principles. And then he starts writing, and he gets, from his friends in Rome, he gets questions, why is Jerome doing this? Is he doing it properly? Tell us what you think and all the rest of it. And then Jerome, before he even sees Rufinus's translation, starts writing against it <coughs> and does all sorts of absolutely abysmal things. I'm just going to find a quotation here because it is, it is so striking what he does. Um, so in this, in this work, Jerome says, uh, explaining why he thinks that origin shouldn't, this work shouldn't be translated, he says, I find among, among the many, many bad things written by origin the following most distinctly heretical, that the Son of God is a creature, that the Holy Spirit is a servant, that there are innumerable worlds succeeding one another in eternal ages, that angels have been turned into human souls, and I'm now skipping parts because it just goes on for this, that our bodies themselves would grow aerial and spirit-like and gradually vanish and disappear into thin air, into nothing, and that in the restitution of all things, all beings, including the devil, will be, will be of one condition and one degree, then will begin a new world from a new origin in which one who is now a virgin may chance then to be a prostitute. Okay? He's got a thing about virgins and prostitutes, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> okay? So he goes through a whole list of charges like this, and then he says, these are the things I point out as heresies in the books of origin. It's for you to point out in which of his books you found them contradicted. I mean, really? You know, these are things that I say Origen teaches and teaches badly. I'm not going to tell you where they are. You show me where he says otherwise. Yeah? It is is just abysmal. And we're talking talking about the person, Jerome, who also translated. Yeah. Oh, Song of Songs and all the rest of it. Two homilies on the Song of Songs and talks about how no one. Yeah, even better than the apostles. He's he's no no better theologian after Paul himself. He uses this lofty language to talk about how Origen is the most. Oh, there's just no one like him. And okay, then so, uh, so that's where you start to get the charges raised against Origen, and they're ultimately all baseless. They're, they're, they're Jerome's throwing out charges, which then develop into an anti-Originistic type trajectory. And the result of that is that the work gets condemned, and Origen himself is condemned, and the work is lost. So we've only got it in the Latin translation. Now, what makes it 
difficult is that Rufinus, in his prefaces, he's got two prefaces, before book one and before book three, in his prefaces to On First Principles, he's, his translation of it, he says, I've changed some things. Yeah? You know, wherever Origen seems to say something which is against the faith regarding the Father and the Son, well, this is obviously the result of falsification, and we know that Origen's works were falsified in trans- transmission. And so what I've done, he says, is restore Origen to himself. I've taken passages from elsewhere and put them back in. Okay? Now, even nobody's been able to really identify what those passages are. Even Jerome is not able to do that. But then uh, Rufinus goes on to say, when Origen seems to say novel things, unusual things about the soul, I've left them in because it's incidental to the faith. So he, he admits that he's doing things, but he's also very specific. It's about relationship between father and son because it offends his fourth century, late fourth century uh, uh, sensibilities with regard to that. But he's not bothered with, by what he says about the soul. Okay, with me so far. Okay. <laughs> now, that's complicated. Now, what makes it even more complicated is that the edition that dominated the 20th century and the translation of the edition that dominated the 20th century was done by Curtishow in 1914, I think it was, and then translated by Butterworth into English in 1930-something, 35, I think. And that's been the dominant work. Now, what Curtishow determined is that Rufinus is a completely untrustworthy translator, that the real teaching of origin is what was condemned in the 5th, 6th century, and therefore we've got to reconstruct the work on first principles on the basis of what we know to have been the real teaching of origin as it was condemned. So, whenever he, Kurtishow, thinks he sees a gap within the text, you know, there's a jump from this sentence to the next, he decides that he can put a whole load of material in it. From the drawn from the, pe- from, the, from the people who condemned it, even to the point of putting the anathemas against origin into the text of origin. Okay? And not only that, he actually made up passages. The most infamous passages, um, the passages, the long fragments, which um, talk about how souls pre-existed and fell into bodies and this, that, and the other, are made up by taking different sentences from different authors writing against Origen, putting them together, a sentence from Leontius, a sentence from Antipatria, a sentence from whoever, putting them all together, as if that text ever existed, put it in the middle of Origen's work, and then, um, you know, in Greek, and this is in Latin, and then Butterworth translates it, you know, with a big heading Greek on top of it, so you think that when you're getting here, you're reading the original work of Origen, not the, the, the perverted translation of Rufinus, um, and you end up with a complete mess. A complete mess. And now you know why we're so excited about the new <laughs> translation. <laughs> um, so let's dive into talking about that new translation, yeah. um, since we're kind of already talking about it now. But can you demystify well, the project of translation? Well, well in, in fact, it's, it's not so much issue, with regard to this work, yeah. it's not so much the issue of the translation of particular sentences. It's how you see the work as a whole working. Because the other thing which is a big issue in understanding a text, especially on first principles, is how is it working? Right. Yeah? You know, the chapter headings we've got are not Origen's chapter headings. They are scribal notes. Yeah? And in fact, the, the print edition by Kurdishow, based himself on earlier editions, just took some of the headings from the manuscripts and just from some of the manuscripts. So 
you've got you know, the heading, um, the first chapter is on God, then the second chapter is on Christ. Well, yes, the chapter on Christ is a heading within the manuscript, but then there are, I think, six or seven other headings before you get to what they think is the next chapter. Yeah? So these are not headings. They're not origins chapter headings, and some of them are complete nonsense. Like, and some of them actually were made up and put in in the, in the editions, which are not even there in the text. Yeah? So things like, uh, there's a chapter heading in Butterworth translation, Kutschau's edition, which says, is it true, as some people say, that human beings have two souls? Yeah? And then another heading, which is called, On the Threefold Wisdom. Yeah? Which is, uh, and, and these are only like a page and a half long. Um, and the threefold wisdom thing doesn't even exist in the manuscripts. It's a, it's a note which is about five lines long, which she says, here Origen is talking about the wisdom of God, the human wisdom, and a whole bunch of other things, and differentiates three kinds of wisdom. It's not a chapter on the threefold wisdom. So you, when you're reading a text like that, you've got to strip out all the chapter headings, the scribal notes where, where the scribes have written, you know, here Origen is talking about this, here Origen is talking about that. Strip that all out, start again, Look at what Origen says he's doing. He's got a preface where he lists the topics he's going to do. Look at the text itself and pay attention especially to things where he says, like, we've done this, now we're going to do this. Having done X, Y, and Z, X, and Y, let's turn to Z. Yeah? Those are the divisions within the work. And when you do that, it actually looks quite different. Well, and as I'm looking around the room, people are looking and going, there's this assumption that when you get a translation... No, you that, you're, that you can trust the Well, if it's mine, you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, but I think there's this misunderstanding of just sort of what goes into the yeah. work of translation, of working with manuscripts, and, and, and sort of designating. Yeah. You made sig- some significant corrections and used different, some additional manuscripts that weren't used before. Would you just sort of, in brief, kind of... Uh, demystify this project of translation for us. How do you approach the work of translation, um, especially when you're engaging with a text I, like this? I absolutely love the work of translating. Yeah? You know, I spent... It, it, I, actually, I did my... After doing my doctoral work in Oxford, I came to teach at St. Vladimir's, and they have a rule that you've got to have a degree from an orthodox institution, so even having a doctorate from Oxford under Callistos, it wasn't sufficient. I had to do a THM. <laughs> Great. Um, and, and so what I did, I, I chose to do a translation of Irenaeus' On the Apostolic Preaching. That was the first book I ever did in translation. Um, and since then, I've been doing translated on the Incarnation. I did this, I'm doing other works, doing Irenaeus and so on. And I've come to love ever more the work of translation. You know, when you read a text... You read it, you kind of follow the argument, you might make notes, you might make quotations and whatever else it might be. But when you translate a text, you've got to pay attention to how every word is used across the whole of the text. Yeah, in a way that you would never think about it when you're just reading a text in translation. You know, when he uses the word because... You know, every single word or Greek particles, or how is it in, in Greek? You've got a whole lot of particles which don't get translated into English, you know, but they balance out sentences, a bit like our ums and our ahs, yeah? or like in contemporary colloquial American English, like this. Yeah? Um, you know, but you've got to know how, how each word is used across the whole of the work to know how to be able to translate it. So your knowledge of the work becomes incredibly deeper in doing that, yeah? And you really get into thinking in the way that the author thinks. 
The other part of translation, and some people don't like my translations for this, but that's not my problem, <laughs> is that I try to reproduce in English the sentence as it is in Greek. I don't like the style which was really predominant in the mid-20th century of dynamic equivalency, where you translate it into what it could be in modern English in short sentences. No, Origen, and especially Maximus, their sentences could be a page long, yeah? But it's the way they're thinking is just as important as what they're saying. It's how they're holding together coordinated clauses within a really long sentence is a way of thinking, yeah? You know, just as, so also, in order that, just as, so also, one sentence should be a page long, yeah? But it holds together in a particular way, yeah? So you get into thinking in the way that the author does, um, and using words in the way they do and all the rest. And it's really so important if you want to try and understand a writer much more than you can ever do simply by reading it. Now, if you want to take it one step further and you're really crazy, you take upon yourself the task of doing an edition because there you're not just translating from a text, you're understanding what that text is. Yeah? You know, we think you know, the text of the gospel, the text of this is well, it's what it is. But in fact, no, it's not. So in the case of Origen, we've got, I don't remember what it is now, 12 different manuscripts of it, all of which are different. Yeah? So not only do you have to know how the word is used across the whole text, you've got to know all the different words which are used in the manuscripts and choose which particular one it's going to be in this particular case. Was, was there any specific section of the translation that gave you a headache? Actually, it, it really wasn't that difficult with On First Principles, um, apart from one, which I spent ages scratching my head about, really scratching my head about, and I'm not sure it's going to come across on a podcast reference, uh, speaking it. It's in book, book four of um, On First Principles, book four, chapter three, section seven. He's been talking about how scripture's got a double narrative going on. He's living in an apocalyptic world. Heaven and earth mirror each other. There's a narrative going on in each. So... Um, he bases it on, um, he says, uh, Paul talks about there being a Jew inwardly and a Jew outwardly. Well, there's two different meanings of that, yeah? Likewise, Scripture third has got a double meaning all the way through. So Jerusalem is, of course, the, cent the, the capital city of Judea, but it's also our heavenly mother, yeah? Egypt is a geographical land, but it's also this world. You're reading things on a double narrative all the way through, and it's correlating the double narrative. So he says this. And so that we, book four, uh, chapter three, paragraph seven. So that we do not linger on the topic of the Jew, his one in secret, and that of the inner human being, the, the Israelite, this being sufficient for those not lacking acumen, we turn to our subject and say that Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs and they of the rulers of the people, and these again of the rest of the Israelites. Okay, the bodily narrative descent through, describes the scripture. So he says, so then the bodily Israelites have reference to the rulers of the people and the rulers of the people to the patriarchs and the patriarchs to Jacob and those still higher up. Okay. Now the word have reference to the rulers is tin anagogi echusin. It has an anagogi. So we're talking about the descent of the tribes, yeah, you know, from the patriarchs down to the lineage, but it's actually a reference backwards, which is a reference upwards. Oh, man. Yeah? And then it carries on. So just like with the bodily Israelites, they're descended from the rulers, and the, each one has a reference back to the previous one. 
The spiritual Israelites, on the other hand, of whom the bodily were a type, are they not from clans? The clans having come from the tribes, the tribes from some one individual being, having a birth not of a bodily kind but of a better kind, he too being born from Isaac, and he being descended from Abraham, all referring back up to Adam. So it's Isaac being descended from Abraham. So it's a descent, but it's also an ascent, referring back up to Adam. Again, it's pandon anagomenon epiton Adam, who the apostle says is Christ. Adam is Christ. The head of the race, the head of the race. Yeah? And what he's doing, I think, is playing with the descending and ascending genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Yeah, in one it's descending, in the other it's ascending. So how do you capture that? So we can talk about, you know, I've descended from my father, from the lineage, and my lineage descends, but how do you say that in reverse in English? You know, we have an ascent through. No, not really. Have a, so the only way I could figure out was to do it was to say it has a reference to. But even that's not quite, no, I'm still not happy with that. Okay, but there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so... Talking about this work and maybe some of the content that we find in there, some of the discussions that Origen has, some of which are, have uh, been head-scratchers for many and, uh, like we've mentioned, controversial, but also incredibly interesting and, of course, the basis for a lot of early Christian theology. What are two points that Origen makes that you find most intriguing or challenging in this work that maybe... And for what reason did it... So, uh, one of the things which really started me going on thinking through Origen again, in book one, chapter two, which is the section on Christ, he, at one point he starts talking about the term almighty. He's taking all different passages from references, uh, short passages from scripture, which speak about wisdom or Christ and so on, and then he's looking at these terms and trying to understand what they mean as titles of Christ. And one of them from Wisdom 7.25 is that uh, wisdom speaks of herself as being I'm an emanation of the purest glory of the Almighty. And he turns to the question, Almighty. Yeah? And in that context, he starts off by saying, um, God, God is only Father if he's got a son, and he's only Almighty if he's got that over which he's Almighty. And therefore, as it's better for God to be Almighty than not, clearly that over which he's Almighty must always exist. Okay, and that part of the work is then simply extracted and quoted without looking at what he says thereafter, because he actually says, but we'll turn to that when we turn to the subject of creation, because we're not talking about that now. Okay, first point, and then he says, I've got to give a warning with regard to this, because our topic now is a topic of Almighty, and my point, he says, is that the title Almighty cannot be older in God than Father. Yeah? Because, he says, it's in wisdom that God has made all things. It's by his word that he's made all things. Scriptural text again, yeah? So he must be Father, the Father of wisdom, Father of the word, before he's almighty. Yeah? So his point, the, the point he's making throughout all of this is that the title almighty cannot be older than the title Father. Because it's by his word, his wisdom, that he makes all things. And then it's, it's, light suddenly dawns. That's actually what the Nicene Creed says. We just think of it as a bunch of series of titles. I believe in one God, Father Almighty. We think, yeah, random titles. But no, actually it's a logical order. One God, 
Jesus Christ is the son of God. And because Jesus Christ is the son of God, God is father. Yeah. And because he makes things through the word and his word, his wisdom, who is Christ, therefore he's almighty. Okay. So there's an order to these titles and that's what Origen is working towards. Okay, so the, 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 the point he's making is absolutely fundamental to all theology thereafter. But then he carries on. The title Almighty, the title of God, is also a title that Christ has. It's used of him in, in the Apocalypse. He who, is, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Well, who else is that apart from Christ? So he's all, also Almighty. And then he says, just in case... Um, you misunderstand what I'm talking about. We've now got to reflect on what the on what the omnipotence is. Yeah, you know, we think Almighty, we think you know, superhuman, omnipotent, can do anything He wants, and working with inert matter and whatever else. He says, no, the omnipotence of God is shown by the fact that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows. Yeah, which is obviously a reference to Philippians two. So the omnipotence of God is that which he manifests in the weakness of the cross. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's not he's omnipotent and forces everybody to bow the knee to him, to become subject to him. It is through the cross, through the weakness of the cross, he exercises an omnipotence, which is an omnipotence of reason, word, wisdom, loving, persuasion, whatever else you might want to say. It's not by force and necessity he's the omnipotent one. It's by word and reason uh, he's the omnipotent one. And it's by word and reason that we learn to bow, voluntarily bow our knee at the name of Jesus, which, well, sorry, which then means, what creation is he talking about? Yeah? So if God, is, if God is almighty, and as almighty, he's the maker of heaven and earth, um, what is he talking about with regard to creation? Yeah? So just think about it for a minute. We use the English word creation in how many different ways? We've got one word, creation, and we use it in at least three different ways. We use the word, English word, we're not even getting to the Greek words yet, but the English word creation can mean, you know, the initial act by which things came into being, the Big Bang, whatever you want to think, okay? That's one way, that's a verb, okay? Um, we can talk about the world in which we live as being God's creation. That's a noun. Two different words, two different uses of the same word, okay? But if one wants to be really specific one would have to say that creation is that which reflects the will of God in an unimpeded manner. Yeah? If God's a potter and we're the clay, the, potter, the, the, the pot doesn't say to the potter, make me a different way. Yeah? So creation, strictly speaking, is that which, which is an unimpeded expression of the will of God. That's his creation. How many of us do that? So we are not yet God's creation. Yeah? Um, so creation, in fact, is something eschatological. When we all come to bow the knee. And all things are brought into subjection and God can be all in all. So that's just with English. Now think about it with Greek. Okay? You know, we just trans say creation and we think, you know, everything is about creation. No. There are at least five different verbs. Okay? You've got pio in Genesis 1. God makes. Pio. Particular verb. You've got plasso in Genesis 2. God forms. Yeah, different verb. You've got ktizo in the wisdom literature. 
okay, which is the p- p- point he's talking about. He's talking about wisdom, literature, and, and so on. God, the, where wisdom says of herself, the Lord created me the beginning of his ways. Just like the risen Christ in the apocalypse says, I am the amen, the archi of God's ktesis. Uh, so, so the archi of God's ktesis, the beginning of his creation. Okay? And interestingly, the word ktiso uh, in wisdom literature is re- used really paradoxically. Um, in the Orthodox tradition, we read Psalm 103, Septuagint 104, uh, Hebrew numbering, every Vespers, at the beginning of Vespers, and at one point it says, um, you take away their breath, they die, return to the dust, you send forth your spirit. Does anybody know how it finishes? You take away their breath, they die, return to the dust, you send forth your spirit, and they are created. Yeah? We hear it backwards. We think God created everything, gave it life, and then takes it away. No, he takes it away, then gives it. You take away their breath, they die, return to the dust, you send forth your spirit, and actually it's in the future. To see someday, they will be created. Yeah? And think about it. Throughout the whole of the scripture, it's always that way. It's God, God is, I kill and I make alive. Not I make alive and I kill. I kill and I make alive so that you know that your life comes from me. I will destroy Jerusalem so she can be my city. Yeah? So creation is, God's creation is actually what is manifest at the end when all has become subject to God, and that is his creation. Yeah? And we get there by Pio, his making, Plasso, his forming, and then you've got other verbs. You've got um, catavoli. Origen spends a lot of time with that. The foundation. God called us into being before the foundation of the world. Okay? So you've got calling now and foundation. And as Rufinus in his translation of Origen points out, the word foundation literally means a throwing down. It's not to constitute or to lay the first bit. It's a throwing down, a catavoli. So you've got a, we're called into existence before the foundation of the world. The world has fallen down, thrown down, um, and is in the process of Pio and Plaza to ultimately be God's creation. That's what's going on, I think, in origin. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.